Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello and welcome to another installment of Novel Dialogue, a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. I am um, John Plotz. I'm one of the many hosts you're going to be hearing in our rangy or even slightly rhizomatic uh, season three. So it's quite an honor today to introduce Charles Yu, a writer I've deeply admired for years, Uh, not just because I'm a science fiction fanatic, although I I really am, but also because he's such a genius at playing with the expectations and misdirections built into science fiction or really into any storytelling genre. So both of his novels, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe 2010 and the 2020 National Book Award, winner interior Chinatown. Um, My wife gave it to me for Christmas and I was so psyched. It was my favorite Christmas present. Um, Are utterly fascinating in the ways that they send characters and the readers after them down predictable paths, deploying known narrative conventions and then double back showing readers how their own minds have led led them into unwarranted assumptions, into the kind of self-deceptive infilling that we all do every day to make our own world seem predictable or safe when it's anything but. So his other work includes two books of short stories, Third Class Hero in uh, 2006 and Sorry, Please, Thank You in 2012, and episodes of Westworld I just discovered, and just a slew of other writing, fictional and nonfictional alike. So um, Charlie, it's great to meet you and welcome. Thanks Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be here and uh, I'm excited to, to be part of this. Cool. Well, we're so excited to have you. And so I am really pleased to introduce uh, as interlocutor, Chris Fan, who will be leading our conversation today, leaving me the time-honored novel dialogue role of twerpy cousin gliding around the edges and eavesdropping. So Chris is a man of many hats. Um, It's not enough that he's an assistant professor at UC Irvine in English, Asian American studies, and East Asian studies. He's also senior editor at Hyphen Magazine, which he co-founded. I am a fan of his super insightful articles about contemporary science fiction, and I was delighted to learn that he's finishing up a manuscript that I think, though, Chris, you can correct me, is tentatively titled Principles of Selection, Asian American Fiction After 1965. Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, So it's thinking about um, the fiction and especially science fiction in that period as an articulation of immigration policy and U.S.-Asia political economy. I look forward to to reading that. So thank you both so much for being here and welcome. I know this is not the first conversation you've had, so I'm going to simply swivel the mic towards you guys and invite you, Chris, to take it away. Great. Thanks so much, John. And hello again, Charlie. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Professor Fan. Good to see you and hear you. Um, so I asked you to, to, to choose a, um, a passage from, from one of your novels to, to kick things off. So, um, yeah, would you mind reading for us? Sure. Um, and this will just be a sh- short couple of minutes. 
uh, or less. Is that okay? Absolutely. Great. This is uh, from How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Uh, and it's early on in the book. Uh, this is chapter three. The earliest memory I have of my own dad is the two of us sitting on my bed as he reads me a book we've checked out from the local library. I'm three. I don't remember what the story is or even the title of the book. I don't remember what he's wearing or if my room's messy. What I do remember is the way I fit between his right arm and his body and the way his neck and the underside of his chin look in the soft yellow light of my lamp, which has a cloth lampshade, light blue, covered by an alternating pattern of robots and spaceships. This is what I remember. One, the little pocket of space he creates for me. Two, how it is enough. Three, the sound of his voice. Four, the way those spaceships look shot through from behind with light so that every stitch in the fabric of the surface is a hole and a source, a point and an absence, a coordinate in the ship's celestial navigation. Five, how the bed feels like a little spaceship itself. People rent time machines. They think they can change the past. Then they get there and find out causality doesn't work the way they thought it did. They get stuck, stuck in places they didn't mean to go, in places they did mean to go, in places they shouldn't have tried to go. They get into trouble, logical, metaphysical, etc. That's where I come in. I go and get them out. I tell people I have a job and I have job security. I have a job because I know how to fix the cooling module and the quantum decoherence engine of the TM31. That's the reason I have a job. But the reason I have job security is that people have no idea how to make themselves happy, even with a time machine. I have job security because what the customer wants when you get right down to it is to relive his very worst moment over and over and over again, willing to pay a lot of money to do it too. I think I'll stop there. I'm interested in, you know, this weird universe, minor universe 31 that is, you know, science fictional. Um, but the reason I'm interested in it is it is to get to um, a, a little pocket of space. So I, I think that's what I'm in, really interested in making is these small um, moments, be, often between family members, um, and uh, how those things can sort of uh, stand out in in our in our lives in our you know, chronological living, how a moment like that can get frozen or preserved. And so it, it matches that as a conceptual thing of, of kind of what I'm always searching around for. And I think on a sentence level, it's, um, it's like a place where I'm having, you know, I can, stop trying to be clever or stop trying to come up with some formal or conceptual game, you know, and just write from the heart. And so, uh, 
doesn't always happen. doesn't happen that often, but when it does, then I, I, that, that I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I was looking for when I started this book. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned that, that this is, um, sort of what you're always going for. And you talked about the, the science fictionality of the novel. And, uh, you know, as John said, you know, you, uh, as, as a fan of science fiction, he, he really admires your work. And I think you're often described as, as a science fiction writer. Um, I, I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit too. So um, I, I wonder how, you know, in this, in this novel in particular, because I, I, there, there are, I think, um, some similar moments in uh, Interior Chinatown, definitely similar moments in some of your short stories. Um, I'm particularly thinking about the, the word that you used, um, small, these, these small moments. And it reminds me of um, uh, uh, one of your short stories from third class super, superhero, uh, Realism, which is about a, a mother-son relationship. And one of the things that she is constantly after is feeling small feelings. Um, and that, that phrase itself, I, I, I always thought was uh, really apt and, and seemed to, to, to sort of crystallize um, an essential aspect of your work. But I was wondering if you could talk about um, maybe in this novel, you know, what, how, how science fiction or science fictionality, if there's a distinction between the two for you, um, how, how that helps you to get at these small moments and, and, and these small feelings, if, if indeed this, is, this, this scene here is one of the, an example of, you know, what the mother in realism calls small feelings. Mm. Yeah, that's a deep cut. <laughs> uh, when you mentioned, it, I was like, I haven't thought about that story in years. Realism, I mean, um, I so thank you. Uh, I I think too, you know, on a practical level, in terms of the writing, um, it um, it's. It's like if I had tried to write this, uh, not you know, in a without any science fiction lens, um, I could describe it, but and and may, maybe I could describe it uh, equally or almost sort of in the same sort of emotional terms that that would feel. I, I don't know what this means, but like equivalent, like I could just strip out, let's say the science fiction part of it. Um, that I, I, I don't know that I, maybe it would work for this moment, but I don't know that I would have ever gotten there, you know, without uh, it's like, I want to have that um, way into it so that I can be, I can borrow the vocabulary, you know, for the sentences. Those sentences are what gets me interested in starting the book and what propels me to, like, keeps me going in the long slog, you know. So, um, so I think because I'm I'm having fun with them, and I think maybe it's a little bit of distraction and it's a little bit of variety. And it's just taking a little bit of the pressure off of the direct emotional experience of father and son and more of uh, the, what it's like to be a kid in that moment, you know, and that feels otherworldly of like, I'm on, you know, your bed feels bigger, you know, your dad, it seems huge. And like, 
And so when I remember moments like that from my own childhood, they do have this kind of not quite real quality to them because I'm, you know, I don't know how memory works, but like uh, at this point, I feel like it's probably much more of a construction than an actual recollection of any specific experience. So there's a kind of, I don't know, in my visual or whatever, my internal memory of a picture of like this scene, it's, um, it does feel like it's divorced from space and time. I guess this is the second reason why science fiction matters to this moment is I'm trying to like kind of dislocate our sense of the normal here, or at least, you know, like as, as I'm writing this, it, I, I don't know where that moment is, but it floats around, you know, like it might just float to me as I'm falling asleep tomorrow and, and then it'll float away. I might not think of it again for years. So I don't know that I can get there. Maybe, you know, some writers can, I can't get there unless I have the science fiction, you know, as the way in. When you first started discussing the pockets of space, Charlie, I was thinking about, um, a way in which in novel dialogue, we like to try to figure out, you know, where the through lines are like the other writers that have influenced you. And so when you were thinking of pockets of space, I was, you know, it reminded me of a genealogy that, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, which goes back to, you know, the romantic period, you know, something like Wordsworth and freezing little spots of time, but maybe comes out in Proust also, you know, that notion of the wrecked elected childhood moment that is gone from you, but it also comes back like it's always with you. And so I guess part of my question is, you know, that genealogy to, to writers way outside the genre of science fiction. But then the other part is I really appreciated the way you framed it as needing the genre of science fiction to give you the language to get there. Like even the notion of the minor universe, I think like the minor universe sort of resonates with that notion of like the small space of, you know, space apart. So I guess kind of a double question there, one about like other writers from the past that you pull on for that idea of pockets of space. And then the other more like just inviting you to say more about that idea of how science fiction is what gives you the, um, the armature or the traction or something to, to explore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Armature is a good word. <laughs> I have dim memories of taking, uh, the modern novel at Berkeley with, um, I think it was Professor Charles Altieri that taught that class. Uh, oh, wow. It was uh, strong. <laughs> <laughs> and I was out of my depth. Uh, There's a bunch of English majors and I was like, I'll take this class. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, you know, we read Henry James and we read uh, Virginia Woolf and we read yeah. like uh, Faulkner and, uh, I think that was that class. Yeah, it was all one class. So um, I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I think where I'm going is there was in my like head, there was those books where they were sort of the, I remember how much sort of like amazement there was that people had, mm -hmm. I guess, rendered consciousness in a way that, you know, felt modern. And I was always like, what does that mean? Like, you're assuming I know what modern means. You know, like everyone just keeps saying modernity or modern. I was like, I don't know what any of this means. So, and then, and then I started, and then I don't know where it was, but, you know, I read, um, 
Kurt Vonnegut for the first time somewhere in there. Yeah, I don't. Know. I was going to ask you about him actually. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know exactly. I can't trace the genealogy, but somewhere in there, I then retroactively realized, oh, I can access this in a way, meaning like Vonnegut, in a way that I couldn't access. I mean, I could access like the people I was reading before that. But I just didn't understand what the huge like innovation or step forward was until later when I realized that it wasn't so like what I thought of as like default. Well, yeah, that's just how our minds work was, I don't know, constructed or had to be discovered in a way and created by these people who these novelists who said, OK, here's here's a new kind of novel. Here's a new. So um it leads to the to the other passage that I mentioned before that that you had in mind um, for starting the conversation, which is this, this passage in in in, in a later chapter where um, the dad is it, it's it's another it's another father son scene where he's trying to impart knowledge on um, on a young a young Charles, and uh, it, he's opening a pack of of graph paper right, and he's peeling off the the cellophane, and it's this very tactile scene. Um, and then he has a graph paper uh, laid out in front of him, and 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 it's and it's and that scene is followed by pages of of all these small feelings, all these all these small moments. And there's, um, it's one of my favorite passages in the novel. And it's, uh, you know, it, you you describe how he um, explains the space of the graph paper and the way that he starts out this conversation, he starts out this lesson where he's teaching. Um, I guess maybe some like principles of chronodiegetics to, to Charles is um, he says, uh, choose a world, any world, as he opens up this, uh, opens up this um, uh, graph paper and presents it to, to Char Charles. Um, could, you, could you say more about the, that, that sense of optimism um, and like why, and how, how graph paper, I guess, <laughs> um, leads to a world? Maybe do you, I mean, do you, do you, do you, do you use graph paper to, 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 um, uh, to to outline your novels and stories, like what, what what is graph paper to you? How does it open up into a new world? What's your favorite brand of graph paper? <laughs> uh, no, I'm so glad you asked about it. Uh, I, I know I, I dithered over which one to read, um, and I ultimately thought, well, if you know, probably most people haven't read the book, even if they're listening to this, they, they, uh, because most people in the world haven't read the book. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I don't want to scare them off by reading up a, a, a passage in which literally I'm talking about how ink dries on the paper. <laughs> like, okay, that's not the best <laughs> advertisement. <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, and I remember, yeah, I don't remember the brand, but my dad in his office would have these thick uh pads of graph paper that had this like just very pleasing feel like they were pretty squishy because there was the paper was like thick and they had these very light green lines and you know they're they it wasn't like a, a perforation it was like they were it was like a i don't know if it's wax but there was like a you just tore it off and there's the sound that it would make as it tore off a nice sheet and but but you I usually wouldn't tear off because you'd want the feeling of all the sheets underneath the top one. And I just, you know, as I was playing with the idea, I mean, first of all, the idea of the graph paper itself is like, well, 
no matter what else is going on, you know, no matter if you're in a foreign country or you're trying to refinance the house because we need, you know, we're maxed out in credit cards, like whatever's going on in their life at that moment, it's like, okay, we have math, you know, like this is now a universe. I draw the X axis. I draw the Y we're in the Cartesian plane. Here we are. And um, there are truths, you know, there are places like you can imagine an astronaut. Now this is a little universe and you know, each sheet is a new fresh start too. So um, I mean, I, um, he would, you know, he taught me math in, you know, I, I'm, as I'm talking, I'm picturing a room where we were, but actually that's that, even that memory is a kind of false construction because we didn't move to the house that I'm picturing until I was almost done with high school. Uh, but the graph paper, I remember from way back and um, yeah, yeah, I, I think there was a, and I remember also looking in his study of like all of the graduate math books he had and just like, I didn't understand what the title meant. You know, I was like, that's not math. That doesn't seem like math. Um, and as a kid and even older, when I was older, just opening them up and just thinking, you know, there's just so much to know, you know, that I will never even scratch the surface of. And um, yeah. Also the, the last bit and, you know, so, so, and those books were also mixed with his other books, which was like often books about like self-actualization and, you know, how to make friends and influence people or, you know, things like that. And um, yeah, it was all kind of swirled up with me in, in terms of his office of like, here's where I'm going to make this happen. You know, here's where I'm going to, make good for our family, get the promotion. And I guess in, in some ways that was like the, the kernel, you know, that, that, that office was probably like the center of where this book came from. So, so one of the, one of the, um, the interesting aspects of this, of how to live safely in a science fictional universe is that, um, is that it is, it is about, you know, uh, about, uh, it's an, it's an immigrant story. Um, Taiwan is never sort of explicitly mentioned, but it seems like this where Taiwan, you know, Asian Americanness, Asianness or whatever is never mentioned, but it still feels so recognizably, um, for, for me, it feels so recognizably Taiwanese American. I think there's specific reasons, um, for that, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to sort of flag that and maybe we can pick up some of those strands um, in a moment when we talk about um, interior Chinatown. Um, but, you know, before we get there, I thought we would zoom out and talk about the, the, the real autobiographical Charles Yu um, <laughs> a little bit more and pick up on some of these strands of, uh, of influences and, um, and, you know, how you, uh, how you came into, into writing. So, uh, I mean, I was wondering if you could just talk about how, um, like when, when when you came into writing, why you wanted to be a, a writer? I mean, as a, as I understand it, you you know you went to law school, you got your JD, you practiced, but you were doing this writing, um, uh, you know, on on the side. I wanted to write from you know undergrad on. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't necessarily think I wanted to, um, you know. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know what I pictured, but I, I did minor in, in, um, in creative writing at Berkeley. And so I was taking poetry workshops actually. And, um, but I, I think for various reasons, um, many related to sort of 
parental pressures or in my internalization of feeling some kind of pressure. I just felt it wouldn't be a good path to try to pursue in any serious way. So once I graduated from undergrad, I, I, I didn't think about writing again until after I had graduated from law school. And I guess the timing of that, both like sort of starting work at this sort of pressurized environment and also finally saying, well, now I'm gonna need some kind of outlet and now I've got this kind of responsible career path. Uh, but I think more, it was this pressure of feeling like, oh, if, if I don't carve out a little bit of space for myself, I'm going to feel very, uh, this could swallow me up. I could really kind of forget what I'm doing and, and lose my way. And so, uh, I mean, this sounds much more deliberate than it was. I think in the moment it was just, well, I wanna have something. And so I started to jot down ideas. And that's really when I started writing fiction was when I started you know, working as a lawyer um, and uh, started to publish stories and um, eventually resulted in getting my first collection of stories published as a book, which was really, you know, unexpected. Um, and, and that's, you know, when you and I met, uh, I was still working as a lawyer. I mean, at that point I had published uh, How to Live Safely and the book before. So I had two books in, and had uh, somewhere around when you and I first met in Venice, I was working at this special effects company as an in-house lawyer. And I'd probably signed the contract with Pantheon, my publisher for the next two books, which was like thrilling and um, you know, not insignificant financially. It was definitely like exciting to think, well, this is a meaningful amount compared to like sort of my first two books where there was just no question like, I'm not quitting my job, you know, like we couldn't live on that. Um, as it would turn out, the, that contract that was so exciting, I wouldn't finish, I wouldn't fulfill it until last year. You know, so like, it's a good thing I didn't rely on that either for income, because if you amortize that amount over the 10 years that it took me to write the next two books, then uh, it would have been, yeah, sub poverty wages too, so. You know, it, it, it's interesting to hear you, Charlie, talk about how you really kind of, um, became a, uh, a writer of fiction um, when you were uh, working as as a lawyer and and and, it, and you know really resonates with I mean the the, the characters in so much uh, so much of your work who are always living these these double lives I'm thinking of you know the, the title to one of your short stories the man who became himself um, which is a kind of horror story um, and I, I I mean I was wondering if that is 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 that something um, that you felt as uh, as a as a lawyer, um, and uh, did you feel like you were living a double life? Did um, when you were writing fiction, did you feel like you were becoming yourself in in a salutary salutary way, or was it was um, was it an escape for for what you were doing? What was it about? You know, why was it during during um, your time as a lawyer that you started writing that you really started writing fiction? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question, and I wonder. Uh, in your devious, clever way, if this is the segue into Interior Chinatown, because uh, <laughs> you have led me right into uh, talking about I what I think is a connective tissue, which is, mm -hmm. as a lawyer, I absolutely felt like an imposter. You know, I, mm -hmm. I definitely have chronic imposter syndrome, punctuated by acute imposter syndrome <laughs> at moments, often when I'm talking to <laughs> professors of English. Uh, but I... I um, I, yeah, I think, I think it was 
partly I was 25, you know, when I started at the firm, my first job, I, I felt like I was playing at being a grown up. I felt like I was playing at being a lawyer. I felt in some ways it was also, I had started to feel more self-conscious about um, my, my race, I guess, because, mm. you know, I'd grown up in Southern California. I'd gone to Berkeley. So often in environments where, you know, there were a lot of people of Asian descent, you know, I, I didn't give a lot of thought to it, but in New York, it was quite different. You know, I felt, especially in law school is smaller population of, of, you know, Asian Americans and percentage wise. And then when I got to the firm, it was even smaller. You know, I, I really felt like, uh, um, you know, there were no Asian American partners, you know, that I knew of, there might've been a few somewhere else in another office, but I, I, or even senior associates. So I felt a little bit like, well, do I belong here? You know? And so in, in a triple sense of like, I don't think I'm a lawyer. I'm long-term. I don't, you know, I see how good some of these people are at their jobs. And then also just, I don't know if this is me. And then also, yeah, feeling like, like I stuck out a little bit uh, because of my face, you know? So um, that self-consciousness, I think got channeled a little bit into the fiction. I think uh, that's where it went. You know, I, I think that's what was fueling a lot of the stories and like the man who became himself there. Like you said, it, I think calling it a horror story is really funny. It, it's like it's trying to just basically, you know, constantly feeling like I was putting on a costume or a mask. And um, so a lot of my stories, I think, at, at least at the beginning, were about work or about doing a weird job and had some sense in which you could like separate yourself from your public identity um which you know looking back i see how much that's really a lot of the stories um so yeah and it seems like a lot of your characters are um are workers or like versions of office workers they often have bosses or they're being directed somehow like in in how to live safely uh uh charles has a a boss who's <laughs> who's an artificial intelligence named Phil who tries to be like the cool, relatable boss, um, but 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 fails um, uh, a lot. And I I, I wonder. I, I mean, how much of that um, that that office life has has sort of stuck with you, even in Interior Chinatown? You know, the, the like these are they're all actors. Um, all the characters are actors, but they're 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 working actors, right? Um, sometimes they're not really super successful at. At earning a, a livable wage, but they're all they're all working. Um, yeah, I wonder. Like, is is Interior Chinatown an office novel? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I think that's a really mm-hmm. uh, uh, like perceptive way to look at it. I think in a w- weird way, it is uh, an office novel. Um, it where the job is either being Asian being a, being someone's idea of Asian or being yourself too, even with your family, you know, like, um, I wrote a story, uh, called my last days as me, which was one of my first stories in which, um, what happens in the, in the course of the story is the guy who is me with a capital M finds out that a, a new act actor is going to take over for playing his mother or it's actually my mother right so because it's and so so um me 
has to deal with the new my mother coming on into work. And I don't know how long I was, how far into writing Interior Chinatown when I realized that I'd sort of like started this story, you know, 15 <laughs> years earlier. I was like, yeah, huh, this is kind huh. of a sequel <laughs> with that. But that my last days as me had no mention of, of race. You know, there's no ethnic dimension to that. It was just self as a kind of performance. But I was thinking about this point about the way that police procedural or science fiction, the sort of texture of science fiction language gives you um, like a machinery for your stories, a, a, a armature maybe to go back to that. And I was just thinking one of the things I really love about your, your writing is the way that characters themselves are sort of aware of being trapped in a genre or operating in a genre. Like they have this role or maybe they'll graduate to that other role. And um, this is not a metafictional question. Like, I'm not trying to ask you to, to channel Charles Altieri. It's more like a question about how much you think about, you know, you like that your writing is kind of enabled by these constraints of genre in some of the same ways that you see your characters. Yes, definitely confined by their generic roles, but also sort of enabled by them at the same way. Like that those are the roles we have to live with, you know, mm -hmm. so. Yes. Yeah. Enabled is a good word for it. I think um, I, you know, am paralyzed by the infinite degrees of freedom that you start out with. And so constraints, is, you know, as you mentioned, is uh, can be paradoxically or non-paradoxically freeing to say, well, here's it. Here's one given. I can start here. You know, I'm writing a time travel story still I need to choose many more constraints before I can have any idea what I'm doing. Um, and the police procedural is our sort of the culmination of that, you know, in terms of constraints, a literal template. Uh, and um, I think the other thing that it, besides just process that it does for me um, that I have fun with, you know, is uh, both in science fiction or in the world of uh TV cop shows, you get to import all of the furniture, all of the armature, all of the, you know, all of the good stuff from tropes, right? You get to take all the tropes and bring them in or, um, and they're doing a lot of work for you, you know? Yeah. So um, I'm still processing the fact that you wrote for Westworld. So uh, let me think out loud about that. But but in a way, I, I took taking what you said, and just connecting it to the lived experience that we envision the characters have in your world. I guess I just want to say the thing that's fascinating is not just that the, the you know, the, the, the graph paper that you're talking about, like the time machine is the template that allows you to start telling the story, but also that you show us that that's actually a dimension of all of the human lived experience of your characters also, like that the characters also are you know, looking for a template, like they, they, you know, they, they're, I mean, maybe not willingly, but they're inside those same roles. And yeah. so. Yeah. You know, to pick up on that, um, John, you put that really beautifully. Um, I, you know, I, I wanted to ask a question about, about Dorothy and Ming Chen uh, Wu. So two of the, well, I, I guess that the way I read Interior Chinatown has got these three main characters, it's Willis Wu and, um, and his, and his parents, um, Dorothy and Ming Chen. Um, 
And this is this is a question that that kind of uh, links back to the, uh, the the passage that you opened with, um, Charlie, um, the the bedtime reading passage, and that that really resonant sort of second item on the list. How you know that that scene of reading, that kind of bodily configuration of the father um, making a pocket of space for his son, um, how it is how it's enough. So there's a, there's another moment in which this this idea of enoughness appears. Um, and, and it's an in interior Chinatown. It's a scene with Dorothy and Ming Chen. And this is a this is a moment when they step out of out of the, their, their framework, out of the armature of stereotype, right? Up until this point, they're called, um, I think they're called Asian, uh, Asian woman, uh, young Asian woman and uh, Asian waiter. And this is when they're telling the story of how they met, how they fell in love, and they um, this is their wedding reception, and they're dancing, and there's this really there's a small moment, <laughs> a small moment of small feelings, um, in which Ming Chen uh, whispers to uh, Dorothy, or maybe it's Dorothy whispering to Ming Chen. I can't um, can't quite recall, but it's it said it's just us now, and right now they're they're not referred to as those generic names, right? They're referred to by their by their proper by by their names by their actual um, by their actual names. Um, someone says, it's just us now, um, and it's more than enough. Um, I was wondering if there, is there, is there something about like kind of enoughness that, um, that has stuck with you through your work? Um, does, does that, does that idea or that, that small feeling, um, does that, does that resonate with you? Is that what, perhaps one of the things that you're striving to get across to your readers is, is, is an idea of enoughness and, and what might it be? Uh, I love that question. I think I had never drawn um, an explicit connection between those two moments, but when you sort of juxtapose them like that, it, uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's a meaningful connection to me. And I think what you're, you're, you know, pointing out is, um, I think there's something about these characters, both the parents in both novels, um, they are immigrants, um, and they are coming from a place of, um, you know, struggle, economic, um, a struggle to be accepted or to feel like they're very much outsiders. Um, and, they have this, uh, at least at the beginning, a very um, strong uh, sense that they can improve, you know, their station, that they can, uh, and, but somewhere along the way, or maybe all, at all points, it, that gets kind of conflated or mixed in with a desire to actually just accumulate things, you know, to, to get to make money to that's this that becomes the metric you know is is for doing what they wanted which was to build a life but it ends up becoming and so somewhere becoming a kind of chase and, and somewhere in there i think because it's becomes about money um that's where it becomes never enough because that's not you know that's not actually a goal um that that's going to satisfy them. So I think that's underlying the psychology of, you know, both Willis's parents and Charles's parents in those books is the sense that they never would have been happy in any version, probably not happy, 
they have moments of happiness. They just never would have felt like they had reached their end point. And in both cases, you have a son who I think is trying to both for his parents and maybe for himself. And then in interior Chinatown, even for his next generation, for his offspring mm -hmm. to tell a version of the story or to, to like, when is it going to be enough? Where do we find enough? Like following up on what, on what, the way you guys are passing this concept of the sort of enabling stereotype back and forth. This is one of the reasons for me that I just keep living with that, um, the Du Bois formulation of the notion of living behind the veil or the second sight, mm -hmm. which is a condition that has to do with knowing that other people look at you and see you in like some narrow role, they put you into, you know, a racial type, and then mm -hmm. that's what they see you are, but you know, you're something else but you also know that they're seeing you construct you that way at the same time. And his point is like, that's actually a second sight and mm -hmm. it's horrible, but it's powerful as well because you can right. see the gap between the role people assign to you versus, you know, the role you assign yourself from inside. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think it becomes like a kind of that double consciousness, that work of double consciousness, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's work. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, and I feel like in interior Chinatown really conveys a sense of the work of inhabiting a role. And um, uh, that's, that might be part of the expression of love is like, um, you know, becoming, uh, uh, you know, being, taking on the role of a dad, right. Or taking on the role of um, a mother or, um, or husband and, and doing the work to, to sort of wrench yourself into that role that isn't quite yourself, but is, is yourself, right. To sort of step out of yourself and have that kind of moment of generosity, but also have that moment, um, uh, have that, uh, capability to, um, to, to really put in the labor to become what the other person needs, or I guess what you think the other person needs. Um, so I don't know, is the, the, does that sound like part of what you're, you're trying to get at, um, Charlie? Yes, definitely. I think that's really well put. And, you know, I think the that second sight or double consciousness is, um, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, I really resonate with, with all of that. The, the final question that, um, <laughs> that we like to ask on, on novel dialogue, which is, is there, is there like a, a guilty pleasure or is there a treat that you, that you give yourself when you're in the throes of, of writing or, you know, you, you hit writer's block or something like that. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you turn to? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I wish I could come up with like a, a, like something that makes me sound either smart or <laughs> transgressive, but it's gummy bears. I mean, that's really what I turned to. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I hope um, you're not, I hope you're not vegan because I have a son who loves gummy bears and he spends like all his life looking for the, like, <laughs> you know, vegan gummy right yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, how, what, um, at what rate do you consume them? Are you talking about like two or three? Or are you talking about like a, the whole package no it's it's two or three but it probably adds up over yeah. the course of a day i don't want to think about it too much <laughs> have you ever had the five pound gummy bear you know what i'm talking about i've never eaten it i've seen it you've seen I've, it wait okay. it's a single gummy bear that's five pounds it is a single gummy bear Get that's out. Five pounds. We, we we have owned it before we've never finished it but <laughs> it does exist 
<laughs> oh my god it's the moby dick of gummy bear <laughs> um well uh thank you guys for a really fantastic com completely illuminating conversation um and i just want to wrap up things by thanking uh the society for novel studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from both uh, duke and brandeis university i say nye kim was this episode's production uh, intern and designer and claire ogden the sound engineer Please um, subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends about us. So novelists that we have spoken to in past seasons include Teju Cole, Orhan Pamuk, Helen Garner, Sigrid Nunez, and Carol Phillips. And there are a lot more great conversations coming your way this season. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, um, Charlie, Chris, thanks a lot, and thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.